Okay, in a few minutes we want to begin on page one. What we want to do is to begin to walk through basically three things, and that is the need for prayer, the need for the word, what's the last one? The need for fellowship, uh-huh. because they're all deeply, deeply connected. And it was not too awfully long ago when um, the need for fellowship, the way I expressed it this morning, which is I'm coming to present myself to the Lord, became a real part of my life. And I want to tell you the story of how it happened. And that is that uh, Linda and I usually go to McDonald's before we go to, to church and uh, in the morning. And it's just been a habit. I'm not home all the time, and I don't get to spend a lot of time with her. And so that's just kind of our thing. And so Fillmore McDonald's was it this morning. And so we're there getting some breakfast. And, uh, and then we, went to, we got in church, and our church um, is, is you know, a pretty packed out place uh, in the morning. And I enjoy that. But there's this particular place that's mine. I sit right about there or so, you know. And, and so I came in, sat down, and I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but I sat down, and something was wrong, and I couldn't put my finger on it. It's just, man, something doesn't feel right. So I grabbed the bulletin as quickly as possible and checked it out, and sure enough, my pastor's gone, and we're going to have a guest speaker. And I honestly did this. I, kinda, I, think I, I, turned around, I looked at the door to see if I could get to the door without anybody seeing me. And then I think I thought, you know, if, um, if, I didn't get to the, if I didn't get to the door and I had known this or if I had known this ahead of time, uh, would I be, even be here this morning? And, uh, and then the, how many ever have the Holy Spirit just kind of speak to you? It's that kind of subtle, still, small voice. Where are you at? How many understand that? It's just like God said, son, you didn't come this morning to hear your pastor preach, first of all. You came to present yourself to me. It changed my life. It's one of those absolutely phenomenal things where you're just kind of going, whoa. Because, you know, church becomes an, opposite, uh, an option for some of us. And I would say, folks, it's not an option. It really isn't. It's a matter of we're here as a body. Here we're here to present ourselves to the Lord. Uh, reason for my cell phone? Um, I've just got to share something with you just really quickly here. When my wife calls, this is the call that I get. Ring, 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 I, I had to do that. All right, now the point. Turn your cell phones off. Let's <laughs> see if I can get mine to go off. There, um, as we're getting started, I, uh, I don't know if I told you this this morning. Or not. I can't remember where I'm at even right now. I'm just kind of in a fog. And Pastor, I think you said something about that. Everyone, you know, we get in fogs every once in a while. I've kind of been in one, but I've been... I don't know about you, but I enjoyed this morning. It was just a kind of a fun morning. It was just kind of a good morning. There was a, did I tell you about the guy and his wife? I don't think I did. The guy and his wife who went to Israel for a vacation, older gentleman, older man and, and wife, and while they were there, she died. And at the funeral home, the funeral director said to the older gentleman, uh, we, we can bury her here in Jerusalem for $150, or we can ship her back home for $5,000. And the guy thought for a long time, he thought, you know, and finally he said, I, I think I'll have her shipped back home. And the funeral director said, well, you know, it's awfully expensive to have that done, and it would be really nice to have her buried here in Jerusalem. He said, why, why, why not save the money and just have her buried here? And the older gentleman answered. He said, you know, I heard a story about a guy that was buried here some time ago. He said, three days later, he raised from the dead. He said, I just can't take the chance. Let's begin with the subject of prayer. Here we go. Top of page one, practical praying. Notice the psalm. Psalm 65, verse 1 says, Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. And to you the vow shall be performed. O you who do what? Hear prayer. prayer. Now, what we're going to do with this set of notes is we're kind of... We're going to kind of follow it kind of casually, meaning simply there's a sufficient amount of white space and also some back pages 
that I will give you a lot of verses of Scripture. We'll go off on little rabbit trails here and little tangents over here and so forth. But as we begin, I want you to notice the nature of prayer. Now, this is extremely important for anybody that wants to pray. It has to do with what I talked about this morning, and that is that prayer is not just asking God for things. If you've got that in your mind, I'll tell you what, your, your prayer is going to be frustrating after a short period of time. You're not even going to want to do it, actually. But wherever I go in America, every single place I go, every prayer meeting I'm in, every church I'm in, basically, it's all about asking God for things. And that's just a small part. We'll get to that in a little while. The number of different what we call elements of prayer are in session four a little bit later on. And so if you'll notice what I'm saying right now, prayer is really a communication system. That's kind of loosely put, but that's basically what it is. It's all about communicating. Now, the older I get, the more I recognize how valuable communication is. Please listen to me right now. How valuable communication is. How many would say, I've been in situations where the communication wasn't very good and it really disrupted a relationship? When my wife and I first got married, uh, it was a matter of we, we just didn't understand each other. An awful lot of it had to do with a lack of Communication, yeah. Or an incorrect element of communication. Because I can communicate, I could communicate to her when we first got married in ways that weren't good, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it goes something like this. <laughs> Anybody catch the communication? Yeah, it speaks an awful lot. And so the whole subject right now is about communicating with God. That's the first thing. Now, notice what the scripture says. As we move through a number of different areas of learning to talk with God, part A in your notes, talking with, him, with God involves... Now, I'm only giving you three things. What I want you to do with the notes is later on, perhaps in some Bible studies or time when you're spending alone with the Lord, you'll be able to add much, much more to, to the, these particular notes. But talking with God involves three things, basically. The Scripture says it involves sharing with God. Now, when I first came to an interest in the things of the Lord. When I first came to the Lord, there's this awesome element of somebody that was is the creator. And it kind of is a, it's almost to the point where it's not really possible to commune with God because he's too big, he's too impersonal. There's an awful lot of people in the world that believe that God is an impersonal God. The Bible shares just the opposite. And that we get, can actually get to know God. Not perhaps in terms of how he's put together by any means. But in terms of getting to know his heart. And so you'll find in scripture some 200 different names of God that are all indicative of his character. Somebody help me out. What's the character of God expressed by a name of God? Who? Jehovah. But now the question becomes, what does that mean though? So if you narrow that down a little bit, he becomes jo Jehovah and... Okay, Father. Or Jehovah, and there's about 16 different Jehovah names of God. Each one of these names indicates a character of God that he's saying to his people, this is how you get to know me, it's through my names. And this is how I can become personal to you. Now, I began some years ago to put in my Bible a number of different things about the names of God, mostly from the standpoint of me personally getting to know God, what he was actually saying to me personally. I believe today, according to my list at least, that God is my strength. Now here's why I believe that. There's just too many times when I've been tired, I've been worn out and so forth, and through the word and the strengthening of the human... For instance, this morning, um, I, I probably, you know, if I really thought about it, I didn't want to come. How many would say, Ray, I didn't want to come to church? You know, there's some times when you don't want to raise your hands because you don't want God to know what you're thinking. I understand that, you know. But it's a matter of, I don't want to go to church a lot of times. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And yet I was here this morning and super glad that I'm here. Super glad to be with you folks. It's been a wonderful morning so far, a wonderful afternoon. But that only happens in me personally, I don't know about you, because of the strength of the Lord. And it happens because I understand the Word better today than I did a year ago or so. Uh, so he's the strength. What about source? Now, I think there's a lot of Christians today that are after certain things from God simply because he, he's the God of blessing. I believe that. But I don't want him to be only the God of blessing or only the God of abundance. 
I, I want that to be a proper place. So I'm not seeking the Lord just to become rich, or, which isn't happening right now, or to become you know any of those kinds of things. But if God says, I'm your source, and it comes to financial need, it comes to other things, then I want to be able to trust him, whatever that means, in the process of moving into that dynamic as far as his character and his relationship to me is concerned. Here's one that really got a hold of me. And that is, I knew him only because somebody said that he was a savior. Then somebody said, no, he's Lord as well. And so you have to realize the dynamics between those two. He's my savior. Folks, I believe this. He's not just our savior for eternity. He's our savior for here and now in terms of delivering us from the enemy of our soul and the flesh in which we live. He's saved us from a lot of stuff. And so then he becomes Lord. I had to confront that matter of, will I serve him at a place where I can call him Lord because I'm obedient to him? And, of course, we have to follow through on that. But one day somebody suggested that he was uh, our father in terms of something I had not ever heard before. And that was he's our father in terms of we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That revelation, I can still remember almost exactly where I was at when that came or later on when I was thinking about it, because somebody preached that sermon, and I mean, I was up on the Columbia River, I think it was, in Washington State. You just remember some of those powerful things that happened to you, and you can actually remember, boy, it happened, I remember where it was just sealed into my spirit at that particular moment. And I think I kind of wandered around with this funny thought. You mean I'm a son of God? Not in the same capacity, of course, that Jesus is, but he calls us sons and daughters. Powerful revelation. Incredible revelation, but then it even got better. Now, this is probably more, more meaningful to some of us than others. And that is that I never had much in terms of a father. And as a result of that, grew up much different than other people who, for instance, had fathers that were very close. The thing that I've learned is that we're never, I'm never to complain about that. Paul said, forgetting those things which are... Behind, And so this is not a matter of self-pity. Now it's a matter of challenge. I've challenged in terms of I want all of my four daughters and all my five grandchildren to know what a father is because I've determined to be one even though I never had one that was a real father. And so we started a new generation with me and my wife. And it's fun to kind of see our children and our grandchildren growing up and and uh, the, the times of fellowship that we have together around Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter and so forth and the house full of people and all of that, it's just amazing what we're beginning. I'm personally beginning to understand about an awful lot of things about Scripture, about God. Here's the point. I read one day where he says, I'm Abba Father also, meaning I'm not just your father in terms of some kind of a relationship, but you can call me Daddy. My friend... You start to get into that point, and I'll tell you what. That will take an awful lot of care, concern, awful lot of worry, anxiety away. And this isn't something that I'm trying to somehow or another exudate from the Scriptures that aren't, isn't true. He wants us to, to understand that he is Daddy God, not just Father God alone. And so you start to go through it. He's our peace. Now, here's what I discovered about that. this, is that every once in a while I'm kind of emotionally set aside or emotionally upset. Does anybody understand what I said this morning about the worry, anxiety, depression, discouragement, all of the frustration about emotions that seem to be so prevalent in our society? And it would be easy to pray, Lord, I just need some peace in my life. And then I discovered, here's what the scripture says, it's not that Jesus gives peace, the scripture says he is our peace. Now i got to sit and figure out what that means. Basically, I don't have the ability to do so, but I believe this. God has the ability to cause me to understand what that is. The more I'm in the Word, the more I'm in prayer, the more I'm in fellowship, the more I have an opportunity to literally experience the things that I'm talking about right now. But I need to be in a mode of seeking the Lord in order for this to happen. Of course, the basic part of that is prayer. And so sharing with the Lord, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, and you remember the rest of the Word. Now, in terms of reasoning... Probably spend a whole hour on this simply because, you know, we, God being who he is and we being who we are seems like a, a pretty difficult case to try to understand that there would be any kind of a reasoning that would take place. God certainly doesn't need to reason. 
The point is simply that God is saying, I want you to share it with me. I want you to be able to do so. When I learned that, it was a matter of, I began to realize that all of my frustrations, all of the difficult elements of life, I could simply take and say, Lord, you know, here it is. I, I, I want to share it with you. So if I was frustrated with a person, I could share that. If I was frustrated with myself, that all of that stuff can be shared with the Lord. Now, most of you are probably doing that. I hope you're doing that. Because that's an element of confession. There are two elements of confession. That's an element of confession that has nothing to do with sin. It simply has to do with the fact that we need more information and we need a relationship with the Lord. Now, let me show you in Genesis chapter 3 how this really works out from the very beginning. So we're going to move over. You can write it in the margin there, Genesis chapter 3 in your notes. Beginning with verse 6, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. I'd like to encourage you always to bring your Bible to church. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this is the fall now, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Tremendous amount of theology here. But we're just going to take, kind of skim the top of some of it. Kind of a little side note here. There's occasionally, when reading about in Genesis chapter 3, the, the temptation for some of us to gender bash. And I say, don't do that. It's a matter of, you know, who was at fault, the man or the woman? I think I know, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> no. No, it's like somebody once said, it wasn't the apple in the tree. It was the pear on the ground. And that ought to end the, the, the whole element of, of theological discussion as to whose fault it is, because I'm not interested, and I hope you're not particularly interested. What I'm interested, though, is that from that point on, God tells us what went wrong with the human race. And when you look at it very carefully, it helps us to understand several things. One, God knows where we're at today. He understands reconciliation and restoration, meaning simply you and I are being reconciled to God, but also being restored. And every once in a while I run across, or you run across a certain theology that basically says, you know, in essence, there's nothing to restoration. I want to say, the more I walk with God, the more I change. And the more I change, the better I become, not just as a Christian, but as a person in general. And I love the change that takes place. Admitting this, though, and that is that when I first came across this kind of mentality, theology, if you will, I didn't want to change. Let me give you several reasons. I didn't want to change because I was afraid that God somehow or another would, would make me into the kind of person I didn't want to be. Say, so what would that be like? <laughs> Some of you people in this room, I suppose, I don't know. <laughs> but I had a poor experience with Christians. And the poor experience with Christians then led me to believe if I became one, or if I became a dedicated one, then I would be one like the people that I was seeing. And... You know, there's a lot of young people in your church right now that probably have some very skewed understandings of just what it really means to be a Christian. It's one of the reasons why I want to encourage congregations everywhere I go, get close to your kids. Let the congregation get close. Even if they're not yours and you have the opportunity and it's the right way of doing it, they need our encouragement today probably more than at any other time in history. What our kids are going through, and especially our teenagers, and I, I've got a master's degree in secondary school administration, so I pretty much know what's going on. I try to keep up and watch the society, things and so forth. What I'm finding is disjointed congregations where the kids are kind of over here, whereas adults over here, and I want to say, don't do that, don't do that. Th these young people, if they need anything, they need to understand that they're normal in terms of how they're growing up, with their worry, their fear, all of the stuff they're going through, that's a normal part of just growing up. And you went through it. But you see, they look at the older people today and they think, you couldn't possibly know the rejection I feel when I'm a little bit overweight, and especially a girl who goes to school and she's having trouble along that line. Or some guy that somehow or another is a little bit nerdy to the point where he can't quite ever get on the football team. or the We're talking about major things. Do you not realize today that the third leading cause of death 
among teenagers is suicide in America. And, you know, it, and it hits within churches like this as much as it hits sometimes out in the world. And I just want to throw that out just as an encouragement that they need to understand that you don't stand so far off that they can't talk to you because you've gone through what they went through. And sometimes the disconnect, is anybody catching on to this? The disconnect is a lack of what? Starts with a C, communication. So we're talking about, again, right now, communication. And not just communicating with God, but learning to communicate properly with others around about us as well. And so verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife did what? They hid themselves. What sin does is it makes you hide yourself from God. That's why oftentimes you and I are at a place of being in church for such a long period of time that we, if we ever had that, and I suppose most of us in some degree have had that, we don't recognize it anymore because the more we have attended this church and others like it, the more we understand grace and mercy and the love of God that has taken away the hiding factor. What it amounts to is you have a community out there that needs what your pastor preaches in here but won't come. And the reason they won't come is they're afraid of what's in this building because they're afraid of God and they're afraid because of their sin and so they hide themselves. Now follow me a little bit further. They hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is a thing that human beings need more than any other thing. If you think of all the things that you personally need, right at the very top should be, I need the presence of the Lord. When I have the presence of the Lord, that strengthens a part of my being called the human spirit. The stronger I am in spirit, the better able I'm to handle just the things of life and especially the emotional elements, the things that go through the mind. You'll find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5:23. That Paul the apostle talks about there being a difference between the soul and the spirit. Now, this is very important. I realize some churches talk about the way a human being is put together as being dichotomy, twofold. Others talk about threefold, body, soul, and spirit. I'd like to use the threefold element just for illustration. If your theology doesn't agree with that, that's okay because basically we're still in the same boat. Meaning simply, to really understand prayer is to really understand how God put us together. And the Bible says that he put us together again, spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body, three different parts. And we'll explain more of this a little bit later on. The reason I'm saying this is because that there is an element of strengthening the human spirit that if indeed there is a distinction between the soul and the spirit, which are two words in the Greek, Two words in the Hebrew that distinguish these two. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the scripture says, The word of God is quick, it's sharp, it's powerful, piercing like a sword or a knife to the division of the soul from the spirit. So that I know that I need to strengthen my soul by having good influences around me, which is basically the realm of the mind. But I strengthen my spirit by the word prayer and fellowship. And the more I strengthen my spirit, the better able I am to handle elements of warfare, of which one element I want to bring up right now. And that is that basically the, the warfare that a human being goes through, for the most part, is in the mind. The mind is the battlefield. Now, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 3, if I give you a verse of scripture and you go home and look it up and it's not right, for instance, if I give you Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, you go home and you look it up and you say, that's not what he was talking about. Then switch the numbers and look up Second Corinthians 3.10, because I'm dyslexic, I think. If that's still not the right verse, then read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and all of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You'll find it. It is there. Now let's walk through this real carefully together. All right? Verse 3. For though we walk in the... We do not what? War according to the flesh. Then it goes on to say, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. There's so much in that those two verses that we could probably together discuss it for hours and hours and hours and never exhaust it. I'm going to see if I can give you an idea. First of all, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, and of course he didn't know this at the time, but it's not about airplanes, it's not about ships, it's not about guns, it's not about and so forth. It's about what? Some kind of weaponry that is different from natural weaponry. And so Paul probably at the time would say, you know, some of you guys uh, carry swords during the course of the day, or daggers or knives and so forth. And some of you do that to protect yourself to the Corinthians. But then he would say, you know, and even the bows and arrows that some of you have at home that occasionally you take out because you're afraid as you walk the road to Damascus or you walk down to Jerusalem, you carry certain weapons. He's saying the weapons that you carry, these are not functional when it comes to the weapons that a Christian needs. And so it becomes important then for Christians to understand what the weapons is. Paul said, I fought the good fight. How did he fight it? The weapons of our warfare. And then it talks about defensive armament. It talks about the helmet of salvation. It talks about all these things that become now, I think, more important in our day and age than at any time in human history, perhaps, because the warfare has intensified within the human mind. It's why I'm finding now, as I travel and research, and I've talked to thousands of Christians about this now, thousands and thousands of Christians, about what they go through, panic attacks and so forth. And so many of them, I estimated and showed you this, told you this morning, between 50 and 70% of people across the, the, the United States who sat in services on the Sabbath are facing, know, or understand what a panic attack is. Now, that's originated from some thought in the mind that's not legitimate. And the Bible again says, he's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. I'm just curious to know, and I want you to be honest with me. How many say, with an up here, hand, Ray, I pretty much know what a panic attack is. Put your hands up. It's probably 35, 40% right there. So that gives you an idea that even this congregation knows. How many say... Ray, sometimes I have a tendency to worry, probably inordinately. And you put your hands up. See, it's even more so. And Matthew chapter 6 says that, that Jesus is saying, I don't want you to worry. It's a whole area of, of what Jesus is saying now about what you and I are going through right now, that he is saying, I didn't intend this for you. Now, here's where I want to make sure. A pastor can go two ways in this particular thought, and I want to make sure you know where I'm coming from. If you have these things and they're wrong, I don't think God wants us to feel condemned about it. But I do feel that he wants us to do something about it. So it's not a matter of, okay, I worry, I do this and so forth, I get a little negative, I get a little bitter, I get a little critical. I'm not here to make your problem worse. I'm here to try to help you to understand. If you are there and are willing to admit it, let's do something together to get out of it. Is that fair enough? And so it's a matter of, okay, what, what is it? And that's what we're going to be teaching on. For instance, the weapons of warfare. Some, now, this could be embarrassing because I've had this happen pretty much before. Somebody in this room, name a weapon of warfare that you actually believe is a weapon. Anybody? No, we're talking about a... Now, that's the physical thing that Paul said, this is not what I'm talking about. He said, I'm not talking about a sword. He says, the weapons of our warfare. What? Hatred. I shouldn't hear that. Hatred. Hating. Hatred? No, no, we're talking about a weapon to fight the enemy. Prayer is a powerful weapon, wouldn't you agree with me? I think it's an incredibly powerful weapon. I can think of a couple others I think are more powerful, but I don't know. It's a matter of trying to discern which weapons are more powerful than others. Did you say something? Somebody else. God. The Word of God. Ah. Think about where you would be right now if it were not for the Word that you know. Because you've been faithful to come to church even when you didn't feel like coming to church. You got up, you came, whatever. I'm convinced of this. I don't know the pastor ever does this preaches the lousiest sermon you have ever heard in your entire life. This is absolutely the worst. I'm convinced of this. You came to church, present yourself to God, you'll get something even out of that sermon. Convinced of it, totally convinced about it. Because not how well he does, it's how much the Holy Spirit 
is working and moving powerfully in the sermon. That's why I want to say, don't ever evaluate a, uh, uh, something that your pastor is doing simply because it, you didn't identify with it. Because somebody else probably did. And so the word, we've got prayer. What else have we got as a weapon? Well, let me just give them to you, save some time. Now, I believe, this is my personal belief, that the blood of Jesus is probably the most powerful weapon in the Christian arsenal. I'm not sure whether we get to the utilization of it, because I want to know how to use these weapons, actually literally use them. But I've had spiritual attacks at times that I think have been incredibly significant. I mean demonic attacks. It's almost always when I'm preaching on prayer or speech, preaching on spiritual warfare that I'll experience a couple days ahead of time. And boy, they're enough to scare you when you begin to realize demons. And I've seen demon-possessed people, no question whatsoever. I saw a woman one time writhe on the floor just like she was a snake. Overseas, you see an awful lot of stuff. Missionaries, especially people that travel overseas, will see an awful lot of that stuff. I had a demon speak right out of a man, just like in the New Testament, directly to me. Knew more about my life than you can possibly know. My wife couldn't have possibly knew what this demon knew, speaking through this man. Nobody could have known these things. He just tells me about my life. I mean, it'll make you realize what Jesus dealt with in terms of demons in uh, his ministry. is very real. There's no question about it. But what happens is sometimes when I'm under attack, because I know, and I hope you do too, what the blood of Jesus is all about, there's times when I'll simply say the blood, and almost instantly that thing, whatever the attack against my mind is, begins to leave. Now, let's get some scripture on this, because I really don't want to present anything to you that cannot be backed up by, by scripture, properly exegeted from the scriptures. But Revelation 12:11 says, And they, that's God's people, overcame him. That's the enemy. How'd they overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. Meaning they knew that the blood of Jesus was a substitutionary element whereby my sin should cause me to have to pay for my sins. Uh, the blood of Jesus paid for them. So when the enemy comes to harass you, you're no good, you'll never make it. You're rotten. You're just upside down accusations constantly. There's times when I want to say, hey, when I sin, I'm going to confess it because the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not using that as a license to sin. I think that's terribly wrong. But recognizing every once in a while I trip and fall, where are you at? And I need that grace and mercy from God. God says it comes through shed blood of Jesus. There's a second thing, and this goes to covenant making. And that is that under covenant, we find that when you put a covenant together, always a lasting agreement in the natural, Native Americans and so forth, and in Scripture is a blood covenant. It's one of the reasons we celebrate communion. It's a memorial service for blood covenant relationship with God. What's your name? Ted. Would you like to make a blood covenant with me? I don't think you really do. But for sake of illustration, that's all I'm doing right now. I'd say, yeah, if you've got a knife, let's go. Let's do it. You know, so what would you do? We'd make a cut in each other's arms and we'd do what? And we'd say, okay, we're blood brothers. There's a certain element of reality in terms of you and I are blood brothers with God, with Christ, because of the blood. Now, this is taught in Scripture. Actually, the sign of the covenant is what? Well, of course, there's an element of the Sabbath that we recognize together. But there's also an element of, of blood, yeah. And it was sealed by circumcision. And in the New Testament, the circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. Now, I tell you what, I, well, you know, when I came to the Lord, seriously, my life began to be circumcised from the world. Meaning it was cut off. And most of us, I think, understand that. In the, in, and so here's the point. Under serious demonic attacks sometimes, I've simply said the blood. The blood. Because demons know that I know that the blood cleanses from sin. That the blood takes care of a guilty conscience. That the blood draws me near to God. And there's about eight different things I've discovered in the scriptures that the blood does. So the more I know about that, the more I begin to realize here is an incredibly powerful weapon, and especially against what sometimes we can call false guilt. 
because a lot of it sometimes, because there's a lot of us in this room who really, 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 one more time, really, want to be pleasing to the Lord. Where are you at? You, my friend, are a prime target of the enemy. Because what does it, good does it do to try to hit somebody that's not interested in really being dedicated to the Lord? You have a potential for really glorifying God with the heart that you have, and the enemy knows that, so he's going to hit you. Now, the tendency for some of us is to say, well, I'm going to come back off of my, my relationship you know, of commitment, and I want to say, uh-uh, you back off, and you're worse than before. You say, but I don't like to be attacked. Here's the thing. When you're attacked by the enemy and you go through and you let Jesus do the work or God do the work by his spirit within us, you become stronger when you come out the other side. Let me see if I can explain it. How many have ever been through a valley that you thought you would never get out of? How many got out of the valley? I love to do this because it's almost always the same number of hands that go up. But when you were in the valley, did you ever think you'd get out? Never thought I'd ever get out of my valley. It's called the dark night of the soul. Now let's, let me ask you another question. When you got out of the valley, was there a kind of a, wow, that was pretty good for me. I mean, I learned a lot in the valley. Where you at? How many understand what I'm saying? How many kind of thought this way, though? You know, I learned a lot in the valley. It was probably pretty good for me, but dear God, never let it happen again. Because <laughs> we don't like valleys. But it's only valley valley circumstances that really produce the strength sometimes that is necessary for us to go on. Now, here's what I'm not teaching. I'm not teaching that you have to go through a valley or make yourself go through a valley. They come by themselves. You don't make yourself go through one. That's wrong. But I think most of us would agree that when we send our soldiers off to war, they must go through boot camp training before they get out there and fight. And I do believe God allows some element, or actually puts us through some element of boot camp training, but never to destroy, never the crushing element that the enemy would ultimately bring. Genesis chapter 3 again. And so, what have they lost that they need the most? Come on, class. They lost the presence of God. And that's what they need the most. That's one of the reasons why... And I'll keep going over this and over and again, that we need what? The word, prayer, and fellowship. Because those three things specifically, and there may be more, but they're the only ones that I've ever found that actually enhance and bring the presence of the Lord. And they're the things that ultimately get fought the most in our lives because they're the most valuable. It's one of the reasons why, as I mentioned this morning, the three worst, hardest things in my life. Word, prayer, and fellowship. So there has to be a certain element of discipline. It goes on to say in verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Everybody hearing me? This is so funny. I just, I can almost not stand just without busting out. I love this verse of scripture. This is absolutely a phenomenal verse of scripture. Because how many would agree with me? God knew exactly where Adam was. You know, it wasn't like... All right, you know, God's holding his divine GPS system, you know, and somehow or another it's not functioning correctly today. You know, and you can almost see God standing out there someplace in the garden going, you know, this thing just doesn't work. And I've told Gabriel to fix it, you know, and I know he's been awfully busy and he hasn't had a chance to get around to it. Come on, Adam. I know you're either over there behind that great big rock or you're behind that big old tree over there. You just come on out so I know where you're at. No. No, it's where are you at in terms of your relationship with me because we're not now enjoying each other because you're not in my presence. And that's the same question that's being asked to every one of us in this room. You know, not to make you feel guilty, it's just a matter of God saying, I love you so much. Now, let me see if I can prove the love angle for a moment. Most of us read, for God so loved the world. Quite frankly, I don't think it hits a lot of us because we're so familiar with it. It's kind of like God loves somebody that's really on fire for God because that's why they're on fire, because God loves them so much. Or God loves somebody that writes books or can articulate the word, such as your pastor. But me, I'm just common and just ordinary. And you've probably heard this before, and I want to emphasize it again. If you were the only person on the face of the earth, Jesus would still die for you. I want you to kind of grind that in for a minute. You're the only person Jesus would die for you. Now, that's hard to believe. 
but it's true nevertheless. Now follow me real carefully on this, real carefully on this. You and I were created in God's image and in God's likeness. My grandsons were created in my image and in my likeness. Not the same by any means, but meaning my two grandsons are more important than my neighbor's grandsons down the road. Why? Because they are mine. And that's what God's saying to you this afternoon. You are incredibly important to me, is what he's saying to you. I love you. You say, but Ray, why don't I feel that? You don't feel it because that's in the realm of the mind. And the enemy has deceived the human mind. Think about it for a moment. Jim Jones, David Koresh, all the kinds of junk that's out there in the world today. People doing all the stupid things that they're doing. Do you ever get upset watching television sometimes, just news alone? And all the people in the world have got themselves involved in, and you just kind of want to say, folks, listen, May 5th is going to be a bad day for me in a lot of ways. Because four years ago, May 5th, I had just gotten in bed. It was warm in Ventura. The window was open. I crawled in bed. Linda was on her way. I think maybe she just got in bed. Just getting ready to turn the light out just in a short while and go to, and, and go to sleep. And I heard two powerful gunshots outside my window. Now, I'm an outdoorsman. I know what a gun sounds like as opposed to, say, a firecracker or car backfiring. I got dressed and ran downstairs, and my neighbor was dead in the street. Two boys had just a drive-by shooting. We don't have that stuff much in Ventura, but it happened. And they just they killed him. Didn't know him. Just shot him with a 12-gauge shotgun. The first hit him right here at about, I don't know, just less than a foot probably. Got right up close to him. Shot him here. Spun him around. Shot him again in the back. My neighbors got to him just before he died. By the time I got there, he had just expired. He was gone. Folks, I'll tell you what. That is a difficult it's difficult to understand how anybody created in God's image and in his likeness would do something that to another human being. Now, that's pretty rough, but I'm going to get rough during the course of this time in order to make some points. And that is that, in this case, God still loves those two boys that killed my friend. Anybody here believe that? Yes. And I believe God wants to reach those two boys. The sad part about it is that before they were arrested, before they, before they were caught, they were observed, and actually as the police were tracking them and so forth, they got an idea of a little bit about what their character was and even a little bit in prison before, before they were tried and went to prison for the rest of their lives. And that is that they were casual about what they had done. Well, that's no big deal. you know. And both boys, I think, one especially thought, we may, if we ever get caught, we'll go to jail for a little while. I think they thought, oh, maybe six years and we'll be out. When he discovered that he was going to jail for the rest of his life, he finally broke down and cried. This is kind of a haughty attitude towards life. My point is this. Those boys are not immoral in what they did. They're amoral. Meaning simply, they didn't have the teaching, the knowledge, the understanding that some generations, mine included, had before. And as a consequence, I still believe that God cares for them. They're not justified in what they did because they didn't know better, maybe, or if they knew better, they didn't have good, solid teaching, necessarily. But the point is that God wants us to touch those boys' lives. Well, let's go a little bit further. It goes on to say, in verse 10, And so he, that is Adam, said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was what? I was afraid. I'd like to suggest to you, as we're talking right now about... Uh, problems and emotional difficulties and so forth, the, the Bible only presents two problems that mankind is up against, just two. We'll find them in this chapter. There's only two difficulties that you and I will ever face. One of them I just read, which is the subject of fear. In fact, if we had a chalkboard up here, and we don't need one really because we can put up two imaginary chalkboards, but let me put an imaginary chalkboard here and let me put one over here representing the two problems. Is that fair enough? The first one comes out when Adam says, I was afraid. Are you with me? So fear becomes the, the, the first problem that God identifies happened to Adam when he lost what? The presence of God. Okay, He loses the presence of God and he comes up with, with fear. What I'm trying to say is the more you and I get into the presence of God, the more fear begins to dissipate in our lives. We realize I can cast all of my care upon him. He cares for me. 
See, my mind doesn't gravitate to that. You can tell me again and again and again. You can preach a sermon over and over and again, and it just doesn't hit up here until somehow or another the Holy Spirit makes it real to me personally. I'd still be teaching school, probably retired now as a principal, just not, not interested in doing it because all of a sudden things began to become real to my heart and it began to solve these two problems. Now, underneath the fear thing is where we have the emotional difficulties. That is the worry, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, the discouragement. Some would use the term low self-esteem. Also over here, we have loneliness, we have rejection, and then you can turn the page, and as a result of these things, now you get unforgiveness, you get bitterness, you get negativism, you get criticism, and all of a sudden, now we've got major problems sometimes in churches in which there is always a faction going on in terms of the results of what started out originally as fear, because fear started from a lack of lack of the presence of the Lord, and of course, we're back to uh, lack of knowledge as well. All right, everybody with me? Okay, go a little bit further, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break. It goes on to say, he says, I was afraid because I was what? Naked. Naked. Folks, follow me real carefully on this. God is not talking or allowing now Adam to express this in terms of natural nakedness to begin with. Although natural nakedness had to be dealt with. Nakedness in scripture right here is the result of the lack of the presence of God. Because God clothes his people, his creation in what's called glory, which is his presence. So Lucifer... What's Lucifer, Lucifer's name mean? Anybody know? Got it. Or shining one. Why did he shine? Because he was in the presence of the Lord so much. He's considered to be one of the chief angels. Why? He's extremely close to God. So this guy's brilliantly, I mean, he shines. Moses goes into the mount. He comes off of the mount, out of the presence of the Lord, and he shines. Now, I'm not trying to be super spiritual right now, but there are people in this room right now who are shining. Say, can you see it? I can. I can actually see it. But you could if you're standing up here too. You don't even have to stand up here. I'm not seeing a glow on anybody's face, but just kind of a recognition in my spirit that there's a kind of a shininess sometimes about God's people. And boy, you can tell that sometimes, Paul. I mean, I and others as well, and I point to Paul because, you know, that I just met people this morning that were kind of shiny. Meaning your, your forehead's all right, Paul. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons I love the body of Christ. They're just some shiny people, you know. And does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Because you see somebody that's negative and you just kind of go, oh, man, get me out of here, you know. And so this morning, you just could look out there and you could go, you know, and I didn't, I didn't do this, you know. Shiny one, shiny one, bald with real shine. Uh, you know, I didn't do that, you know. Because I was naked, so because I was naked, I, what does he do again? Hides himself. Now, verse 11 says, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Whole sermon there about covenant relationship. I really wish that we had a different ending here, but I'm not God. I don't know how much ultimately that could have been or whatever because we just don't know. But it would be nice if all of a sudden Adam had said, I blew it. I goofed. I made a mistake. Please forgive me. Do what is ever necessary to heal this. But he didn't do that. What he did is he indicated another problem already at work in his life over here. So let me read you what the other problem is. Then the man, Adam, said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. What's the problem? Yeah, let's put at the top of it over here, pride. Because it's basically arrogance. And then what's he saying? Don't blame me. It's not my fault. How many have ever heard of that one before? Not my fault. Not my fault. Don't blame me. Well, I'm going to say, for anybody that says that, 
their chances of getting rid of the guilt that they feel that's causing them to say that is going to be either prolonged or it may never be. And that's one of the reasons why. And the Bible says, hey, come clean with God. Confess. And that's what the whole element of confession is. Own up to it. And so over here, it's not my fault. So what's Adam doing? He's blaming God for sending the woman to him. And then he's blaming the woman because she came. So it's really all your... You gals, you have a lot to bear on this. So the woman has a lot to bear. And so she responds now. No use arguing Adam's argument because he's just used it. Anybody know what argument she uses? It? She uses? The devil made me do it. So verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Doesn't this almost sound like something you'd find on television in our day and age, the two things that we're talking about? Isn't this ironic and wonderful, though? You go back to the very beginning of the book, which, and, and pastor's here to correct me if I make any mistakes, because he has the, not only the right, but the responsibility to do that. And so, and I, it's in that way, pastor, in every church. I don't care what church I'm in. You know, if I make a mistake, you need to, to make sure that it gets corrected before I leave. But could I say it this way? This book is not a textbook. This book is primarily a book about the revelation of God and human beings. It's one of the reasons why I don't believe in creation. Now, as scientifically oriented, which I am, and especially if it weren't for God arresting me a couple, some years ago, and I literally mean, knocked at the door of my heart, you know, and it was a matter of, wow, it was just a matter of, whew, it was something powerful that happened at that time. I would be, if I had the ability, a theoretical physicist. That's the only thing I care about in life other than spiritual things. So the subjects in physics that I'm attracted to are light and time. One of the things that helps me, as somebody that loves the sciences, is that the more you study the sciences, the more you begin to realize God is real. The sciences constantly point directly to God. Unless, of course, you have a mind that is in rebellion. But then you have to twist the truth in order to get creationism out of it. And so I love the sign. Do you know the sign, uh, that's correct, help me, uh, um, that time is not an absolute? That it's different on the space station right now than it is here on Earth? By approximately 3.8 seconds per year. It's just called di time dilation. You say that's not possible. It is possible because if you don't take the time dilation into consideration, try to land the space shuttle, it ain't going to land where it's supposed to land, about a mile, or about a half a mile of land off of that or so, I think it is. You mean time is, yeah, the faster you travel, the more that time slows down. That's why my wife looks so young. <laughs> and so, an amazing book. But to tell us what life is all about? Yes. But how life is put together? No. It's to tell us, basically about our Creator. That's what this book is. All the chapters in this book. And when you read it that way, you begin to realize, wow, it's a revelation about the person that wants to get to know me. Or really, me get to know that person. And so let's go a little bit further. Sharing. And then next underneath that, we're back in our notes on page one, calling on God. Hear me when I call. You with me? Page one. Middle of the page. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my... Distress. Now, here's what that verse says to me. That for all of the stress and de-stress and difficulties of life, the psalmist is acknowledging that that's what God wants to do because he had it done in his life. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. I don't believe in what? I got, take that off. <laughs> I don't believe in evolution. Did I say creation? Check that CD back there. Make sure that doesn't get on. And thank you. I have a tendency to do that. Do you ever do that? Just put your foot in your mouth. 
No, my friend, it's about creation. And what I'm trying to say, the sciences will back up creationism a billion percent more than it will back up evolution. Oh, my. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. We were created, my friend. We did not evolve. I am convinced of that. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing is I'm not just convinced because of the word. I'm convinced because of the scientific data that there is no other option but ultimately that we were created by God. You say, why, why do this not come forward? Have you ever met people that are just not honest in life? Did I just answer your question? Here's what I've been told by an amazing scientist. He told me this. He said, if the scientific community today would admit to what is obviously true, which is creationism, it will destroy too many careers. And these careers were built in major universities on evolution, and a career would end like that. And so if you're not already attuned to the things of the Lord... Why bother to even begin going down that road? Because it's a matter of, so what, if you, somebody's deceived. One more real quick. Pouring our hearts to God. In the middle of the, the dark night of the soul, there's times when, and I'm trying to be in this time that we spend together a little bit, and I hope not too much, transparent. And I hope this helps somebody. But I've been in the dark night of the soul where I couldn't say anything to God. There were just not words to say. When your neighbor is killed, uh, when you lose a child to sudden death syndrome, which our family did, uh, two of our family lost in motorcycle accidents. Well, after a period of time, folks, I'll tell you what, when, and oftentimes, too, and, and this is so important now to understanding stress, and that is that life sometimes begins to move forward. And I meet quite a few people that have never really been too much stressed in their lives. But then all of a sudden, stress hits. And they have an experience. And they kind of go, whoa. You know? And then they go on. And if no more experiences happen, you know, they become oftentimes people that really can't identify with probably well over 50% of us in this room. But there's less and less of those kinds of people today because stress is just upon everybody. Here's my point. When a stressful thing hits, and I'll make it in a downwards thing like this, and it doesn't have an opportunity to kind of go on for a period of time before another one hits. It becomes kind of one thing after another, and it goes like this. It's like Shakespeare said. Problems don't come as single, as single soldiers. They come in battalions. When a problem comes, or problems come in battalions, if you don't know how to handle it, then ultimately you're going to be extremely stressed, and sometimes the stress level will lead to some kind of a incapacity. There are people today that are just as normal as you can possibly imagine, except that they've had too many stresses and they can't really function well more than maybe an hour a day and sometimes they can't function at all. And a lot of people today that are just, I mean, these are not dumb, crazy or whatever people, but they can't get through the course of a single day because the stresses have been so much and they've never had any help in order to take care of how you go through a stressful time. Let me ask a question. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you've been like this and then the phone rings and you just kind of jump? Because the last time that the news came, it was one of these things, and you associate, it's called projection, your difficulty back to the phone call. And it's amazing how that stresses in life can be duplicated again and again and again when there's no stressful thing going on whatsoever by what is called projection. And it's a matter of, and we'll try to teach on this, even though I'm not here. We do an entire seminar on this, but I'm not here to do that this week. And so pouring out our hearts to God. Trust him at all times, you people. And here's what the scripture says. Pour out your heart before him. And boy, it's just a matter of different ways. I mean, it can be a matter of, Lord, I'm just so tired today. Or, Lord, I don't even feel like going to church today. Or, dear Jesus, I just want to slap this person up the side of the head. Have you prayed that before? It's a good prayer to pray sometimes. You know, I know that there's some... Now, bear with me on this bit and hear my heart where I'm coming from because this is not theology. It's not even close. But when it comes, there's certain elements. This is to be funny now. It may not be funny to you, but it's funny to me, so I'm going to tell it anyhow. And that is Catholics had what were called indulgences. Do you know what an indulgence is? It's where you can pay for your sin before you commit it. 
love that. It is. I mean, can you imagine Pastor Greg's going to get up here right now and take an offering? He's going to say, folks, you know, we'll take care of Overcomers Ministry someplace down the road, one way or another. But I sense that some of you folks are going through it right now. And so today we're going to take an indulgence offering. I figure for 50 bucks you can slap the snot out of him. No guilt, no condemnation, no nothing to follow. You just get to do that. How many would pay every once in a while? You'd pay the 50 bucks just to be able to go and do something stupid like that with no consequences whatsoever. I got 20 bucks right now. I need 20 more. <laughs> would you loan me 20 bucks? Because I can think of somebody right now. I usually can think of several people. I would just like, I don't want to hurt them. I really don't. I just want to slap them silly. And then be able to walk away and go, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, glory to God, rather than all the guilt and condemnation for doing something stupid. Indulgences. We still ought to have it in the church today. Catholics had it right. <laughs> Which they really didn't. <laughs> Pastor. He's going to the back. Let me tell you a story about fear. Can I do that for a minute? There's a little, little boy that was playing in the backyard, and he came running in the back door into the kitchen yelling, Mommy, 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 there's a great big lion in the backyard. This is on fear. And uh, his mom looked out the window just in time to see a big yellow dog jump the fence. And she turned to little Johnny, and she said, Son, I've told you over and over you're not to lie to me, and you've just told me a great big lie. She said, I want you to go your, to your bedroom, and you tell God that you're sorry for lying. So little Johnny trucked off to his bedroom a little while later, about a half an hour or so. He came back out. His mother looked down at him. He looked up at her, and she said, Son, did you tell God that you were sorry for lying? He says, Yes, Mother, I sure did. But he told me not to worry about it. He said the first time he saw that big yellow dog, he thought it was a lion too. 